In the same way that American Idol once dominated U.S. television, in Europe, the Eurovision Song Contest is viewed by millions every May. It gives singers and bands the chance to become household names all across Europe, even though most of them remain completely foreign to us on this side of the Atlantic. American-born Jonathan Gruber has lived in Holland for more than 20 years now. Most of that time, he was a host and correspondent for Radio Netherlands, reporting on European issues and culture for the rest of the world. He joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to fill us in on how Eurovision fever is playing out and what other cultural treats he and his family enjoy from their home base in the Netherlands. Jonathan, thanks for being here. It's great to be here. Jonathan, every year in Europe, there's this Eurovision contest, and we don't have anything quite like that in the United States. Can you tell us what this is? They don't have anything quite like it anywhere. Uh, It's called the Eurovision Song Contest, and it used to be just the countries of Western Europe, but now they've opened it all the way to Azerbaijan and Israel's even in it. It's all these different countries have basically a competition. They deliver a singer, they have two rounds, people get knocked out, and then the finalists all end up in one big blowout. And uh, the winner of the previous year gets to host it that year. And it's just, I mean, I think at one point it probably started off as an actual song contest or a song festival. But now it's just turned into this gigantic mega kitsch festival that you don't want to miss because you just cannot believe some of the things that people are willing to do to win this thing. So is it kitsch musically? Like you have that um, schlager, that that syrupy German folk music, or what's, what's kitsch about it? It is kitsch in every imaginable way. The people look kitsch. The dancing is kitsch. The song is kitsch. The decor of the sets is kitsch. It's all It's all quite mad. I mean, and for this reason, the Eurovision Song Contest is immensely popular amongst Europe's male gay community. Okay? It's that kind of campy kitsch. Campy? Yeah, I mean, oh, super campy, super campy. And I do think a lot of people aren't aware of it. They just think that this is just great, especially since many of the Eastern European countries have joined in. They've brought, shall we say... Um, Fresh kitsch. Another elan to uh, to the contest. Another another aesthetic, which they think is just fantastic, but which Western Europe just thinks to themselves, how could they do that? How could they possibly bring these people over? And what's also really interesting about it, this is one of the most interesting parts about it, is that it's immensely political. It's geopolitical. I'll give you a perfect example, right? When the Norwegian Act comes on, guaranteed, Sweden... Finland and Denmark are going to give the most points to that act. And the same thing goes with the former Yugoslav states. Even though most of these countries were at war with each other, they will give each other the maximum amount of points. It's incredible. So now each country has its pop star. It's, it's sort of catch a rising star from this country and that country. How, how is the voting done? Here's how the voting works. All the acts have gone off, and then what they do is they will connect to a studio in each of the countries that have participated. And they will ask the person on the other end of the satellite line, and it's usually somebody who's gotten all dressed up for the evening. And they will say always the same things. I just want to thank everybody for what a fantastic evening this has been. It's been the best Eurovision ever. And then everybody claps and they go, yay. And they say, and now here are the points from the jury from Estonia or whatever country they're in. And then they give the points, right? And it's usually from from zero to 12 and then, of course, they have to give everything in French as well. Dispoint. We have 12 points, and then everybody screams, hooray. 
So, Jonathan, how do they actually vote to find out who's the winner of the Eurovision Song Contest? Okay, so every act has gone onto the stage, and then what will happen is there'll be this big intermission in which the host country will show an incredibly expensive music video. And over this music video, on your local TV, you'll see what number you have to call to vote for each of these acts, right? And you usually have to pay for that. And so it's done by the viewers are the people who actually pick who's won. So remember when I mentioned that it was political? Yeah. Well, this is exactly what happens, right? They vote very politically for this. So people in Croatia are definitely going to vote for the people in Serbia or the people in Bosnia or the people in Macedonia, etc., etc. And then what happens is once the voting is done and the lines are closed, they will go to a person in a studio in each of those countries. And then that person who is really dressed up for the evening will say in an incredibly awkward moment just how fantastic it was that it's the best Eurovision <laughs> ever. And then they'll say, and this is how the people from Estonia have voted. And then when, you, when they get to the moment with the 12, because that's the maximum amount of points from that country, everybody shouts and screams. And then the camera zooms in on the act that got the 12. <laughs> Wasn't ABBA sort of introduced to Europe at the Eurovision contest? That's right. They sang Waterloo and they won the Eurovision Song Contest. And that's how everybody's heard of ABBA. Katrina and the Waves even played the Eurovision Song Contest one. Remember them? Walking on Sunshine? Yeah. Go figure. Well, it's very uh, Europop. But at the same time, it has... W would you say that there are cultural cliches that are celebrated in the Eurovision? I would say that there are cultural cliches which are celebrated in the Eurovision Song <laughs> Contest, Rick. I would say that that was definitely the case, that if you were out to discover uh, a Europe that defied the cliches, I would say don't watch the Eurovision Song Contest. Okay. Look, if you can catch it, if you can catch it, I highly recommend that you watch it because I guarantee you will have never seen anything like it before. And Jonathan, when does that happen each year? It happens at some point uh, in the late spring each and every year. I'm speaking with Jonathan Grobert. We're talking about uh, kitsch in Europe and Dutch culture. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Sid's on the line in Atlanta, Georgia. Sid, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Um, I am interested, particularly uh, as someone who grew up in the what's called the low country of South Carolina, I think there's an affinity <laughs> for people who can reclaim lowland and really make a wonderful uh, country. I'm thinking about a trip to the Netherlands soon, and it's going to include beer drinking and biking, <laughs> diking, cheese. Give me some thoughts, if you would, Jonathan, on some of the places maybe that uh, I wouldn't get. Uh, I want to be really true to the, to the countryside. Give me some ideas about where, where I should head. Well, okay. Well, I mean, when you get to the country, tourism there is incredibly well regulated. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to tell you two things that most people miss, but that are really, really worth doing. Okay. The first one is very close to Amsterdam. It's a place called Marken. And Marken is a former island out in a small sea just to the north of Amsterdam. And it's really worth going to simply because it's usually not busy and it looks exactly like a Dutch fishing village used to look through the golden age in the 17th century all the way to the beginning of the 20th century before the country really industrialized. It still looks fantastic. Okay. Just so you know, Sid, that's Marken, M-A-R-K-E-N. Okay. And that's just like less than an hour north of Amsterdam. A lot of people go to Volendam, and from Volendam you can catch a, a little boat, uh, just a cute little boat that ferries people over to Marken, and you get this very romantic approach to the island that the island town that, that Jonathan's talking about, and it is idyllic. I was just there 
wandering on the back streets of Marken, I could have made a whole photo essay just on that town. Yeah, Folendam is more touristic and easier to reach, but Marken's nicer. For sure. So the second thing that I would advise to you, Sid, is that you go to something called the Kruller Muller Museum. And it's tougher to get to because it's in the center of the country. It's about an hour and 15 minutes out of Amsterdam. But what it does is it's a big open-air park. And in the center of this open-air park, you have an excellent modern art museum, including a giant collection of Van Goghs that they don't have in the Van Gogh Museum. And ah. it's, it's just amazing. And also there's an open air around this museum is an open air museum that's filled with statues and all kinds of giant moving objects. And, you know, it's even good for kids, believe it or not. And to get there, you take a bus, you go outside the park, and then you take the free white bicycles that they have there. And you bike about a mile or so to the museum. And it's super fun to do. And that's why I really recommend that people go to the Kruller Muller Museum. You know, that was one of the uh, very innovative uh, sort of things was having those free white bikes scattered all over the park. So when you get there, you hop on a bike and you just roll around. And as Jonathan said, you got a great chance to see uh, Van Gogh in a, in a beautiful environment. And the open-air folk museum there at Arnhem nearby, the, the Dutch just have a wonderful heritage to share. And if you go to the open-air folk museum when you're out there near Kroller-Muller, uh, the open-air folk museum should be seen sort of in partnership with that. It's just a couple miles away. You can visit all of the historic buildings. You, you can see paper being made the traditional way. You can see windmills working. And uh, I just thought it was the wonderful sort of culture on a lazy Susan for experiencing the Netherlands. So once again, Kroller-Muller Museum, K-R-O-L-L-E-R-M-U-L-L-E-R, and the open-air folk museum nearby in the town of Arnhem, A-R-N-H-E-M. I am thrilled that I've gotten advice from such experts. Have fun, Sid. Okay. Boy, Jonathan, it's fun to, to hear your take on this, because I would imagine a cool thing about raising a family, you've got a 5-year-old and a 10-year-old, is you've got all these great sites within an hour of Amsterdam, uh, like Marken or Kroller-Muller. What's another example of some fun place you'd take the kids? Oh, well, if you're going to be in Amsterdam with kids, then you shouldn't miss the Science Museum, Nemo, which is really an excellent science museum by any standard. It's a world-class museum. And in there, they also have this great cause and effect act, which is the best thing. You know, it's basically one thing knocks over another thing. But they've managed to stretch that out for a solid 10 minutes. It just knocks things over. And bicycles are falling over and giant balls. And, and it's totally worth going to. And it looks like a giant green ship. And it's just a short walk from the train station in downtown Amsterdam. You know, uh, Jonathan, I was cruising around the countryside, actually heading for Marken, which you just recommended with a Dutch friend. And we stopped in a little town and we had, I think it's called Kibbling. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's, I would think if you got kids, I mean, if you like fish and chips, Kibbling is the best fish and chips I've ever had. Kibbling is, is my son's favorite food on earth. Kibbling. He's like a skinny 10-year-old kid, but he can knock back like huge, vast quantities of that. And what it is, it's small chunks of various kinds of unidentified whitefish, which have been breaded and deep fried and then salted and usually served with some kind of creamy garlic sauce. Oh, yeah. It's really good. Any little cute little town or tourist attraction or roadside stop or little port, you can find a stand selling kibbling, and that is your fun, kid-friendly, I think, uh, lunch. Yeah, I agree. We're speaking with Jonathan Grobert. Jonathan and his family have lived in the Netherlands for over 20 years. He's a journalist, former host of The State We're In on Radio Netherlands. Jonathan, I was just driving over the huge uh, dike system there at the Rhine Delta, where the Rhine hits the Atlantic. Just awe-inspiring what the Dutch have done to, to build up the levees and so on. 
And I understand that the Dutch are investing a lot now in anticipation of rising sea levels. Get us up to speed on on, uh, the impact of global warming on the Netherlands and what the Dutch people are doing in response to it. Well, I mean, the impact of global warming here hasn't been that strongly felt just yet. So what they're doing right now is anticipatory. I mean, they, they see the water level rising. This is something the Dutch understand. So what they're doing is they're continuing to invest ever more in their diking system. Let's face it, this is a system that has already existed because of the nature of the Netherlands being, you know, half the country being below sea level. If they didn't dike off the system and have an elaborate series of pumps and canals running basically throughout the entire country, it it would have flooded long ago. Um, What they just decided very recently was that they're going to take one of these polders. Polders is a specific Dutch word. It means an area of dry land that used to be underwater, that they have poldered off. That is to say, they they cordoned it off and then dried it out and then they let people go live there. But they're going to take something called a Hedwig polder and they're just going to flood it. They're going to let it flood. And the idea is uh, to give the land back to the sea so that the sea has space to breathe, as it were, huh. within the country. It's a huge investment and it's paid for by Dutch taxes, I would suppose, not European taxes, Is there any discussion in the Netherlands, because Dutch people are famously frugal, is this an important and a necessary investment, or could they be overreacting to the threat of a rising sea level? There's no discussion about this whatsoever. Everybody agrees you have to do it. (laughs) Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Matt's on the phone in Chicago. Matt, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you guys? Jonathan Rick, enjoying the program. Thanks. Got some thoughts or a question for Jonathan? Yeah, I, I do have a question. My wife and I, one of the last major cities in Europe that we have to visit is Amsterdam. We're lucky enough we get to go here shortly. And in doing our research, we like to do a lot of what I think most of your listeners, Rick, like to do is, is find the back alleys and shop with the locals, hit some of the coffee shops, um, visit some of the pubs in the evening to meet some of the locals and really get a feel for the city. And in looking into and investigating some of our options, I kept running into a term that I really have yet to get a good definition of, so I don't really understand it. And, I, and you'll excuse my pronunciation, but I think it's gazellekite or gazellekite. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I guess the, the question I have is, can you define that so I have a little better idea of what that actually is? And two, do you have places around Amsterdam or side trips that really exhibit this gazellekite well? Okay, well, gazellekite is this term that Dutch people claim is completely untranslatable. I, I disagree. I mean, it just means like something that's warm and cozy and has a light atmosphere. That, that's how you translate it, you know, and it's pronounced gezelligheid. Go on, say it. Gezelligheid. 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 Yeah, so, yeah, and the Dutch people very often say the word gezellig. In fact, I'd say they'd overuse it to the point where it's, for me, kind of lost meaning. But anyway, I don't want to take away the romantic idea you have of it. If you really want to be, like, a little bit adventurous in Amsterdam and you want to experience gezelligheid and at the same time get something unique... There is a bar on the Prinsen Canal, the Prinsengracht, called the Twee Zwaantjes, the two little swans, the Twee Zwaantjes. And what this bar does is it sort of exhibits this special kind of singing that they used to have in the 40s and the 50s in the post-war era of this working class era of the city called the Jordan, which had this, they had these kind of torch songs. 
And if you go to the Tres Ranches, then you will have all these people will pull out microphones and they'll suddenly start singing this, including the bartender. The bartender sings all, all evening as well. And if you know a song, they'll just hand the mic to you and you can sing too. Now, I don't think they expect you to know the songs, but if you want to go there, you know, it's perfectly friendly and it's perfectly welcome. And I would do it. It's, it's super fun. That sounds fun. Is there a time that's best to hit that? Is, is it a late night place like uh, Spain where it's 8, 9, 10 p.m. or is it early in the afternoon? I think it's better to go there on a weekend evening. That's when you're most likely to attract the most amount of people. Best atmosphere. The most gezellig, if you will. You know, I was just in Delft. I, w- I just was there this last summer, and I found Delft. I'd been there before, but I never really appreciated it. It's got canals, it's got flower boxes, it's got, you know, every restaurant seems to have a, a little barge parked out in front where they have cute little tables where people can eat on the canal. And the main square is so cute and cozy with its spires that are tilting a little bit as the Polderland settles. And I just felt the whole town of Delft was, was very gazellic. Yeah, it's like a little postcard. Yeah, Delft's really gorgeous. Matt, thanks for your call, and have fun on your trip to the Netherlands. Thank you. Looking forward to it. How do I say gazellig again? Gazellig. Gazellig. i got to get my Dutch ready. (laughs) (laughs) Jonathan Gruber, former host of The State We're In, Radio Netherlands, thanks so much for getting us up to date on gazellig, Netherlands. So the most common way to say goodbye in the Netherlands is tot ziens. Tot ziens. Right, which is like, you know, until we see each other again. See you later. Tot ziens. Yeah. Right. Another common one is dag. Dach. I haven't heard that one. Which Dach. just means day. Doeg. Doeg. And in the south of the Netherlands, they say, how do? Dach, doeg, how do? Tootziens. How do? Tootziens. And in Amsterdam, which has a lot of Yiddish mixed into it, because it had a very large Yiddish-speaking population before the war, people say, de muzzle. <laughs> de muzzle. Right. Like Mazeltov? Jonathan Gruber, Tootziens. De muzzle. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 130 cities across the country. Help yourself to free podcasts of past shows and Rick's audio tours of Europe's greatest sites in the radio section of our website. For the latest on Rick's radio and TV work, his guidebooks and his European tours with small groups, visit ricksteves.com.